Amen. Well, church, if you want to open up your Bibles with me as we turn our attention to God's Word in John chapter 5. We begin chapter 5 last week. Lord willing, we'll, we'll finish it this week. And let me encourage you, as always, to keep your Bible open, follow along. Whenever you hear somebody preach God's word, you should be an active listener, listening carefully to what the preacher is saying, saying, is he saying what the Bible is saying? And if not, you need to reject it. If it is, you need to obey it. Uh, We're seeking to understand what God is saying to us through his word. In any courtroom, uh, an eyewitness who gives testimony plays an important role role in that trial and the outcome of that trial. There was a man named Elijah Baptist who was a Chicagoan who actually ended up going to jail for murdering a grocer named Sam Blue in Chicago in in the southern part of of the city during a robbery because uh, the robbery turned into, um, into a murder. And he went to jail because of the testimony of one eyewitness, a man named Leo Carter. Leo's testimony was convincing because he was there. He saw the whole thing happen while he was playing basketball nearby. But his testimony was even more credible because after they shot the grocer, he and his friend ran away and they were chased down and then shot in the head in an effort to cover up the murder. Miraculously, the bullet lodged in Leo's skull, and he survived. Not long after, he found himself sitting in a Cook County courtroom. He was blind in his right eye, but he could see with his left eye. And in that Cook County courtroom, he pointed, and he said to Elijah Baptist, that's him. And that eyewitness testimony was enough to bring a conviction of guilt upon Elijah Baptist, and he was convicted to 80 years in prison. John 5 begins with Jesus on trial. That's what we saw last week. Last week we saw the religious leaders were angry because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. That was, in their minds, that was a breaking of the rules. And, and, and Jesus having compassion and healing this man who was paralyzed for 38 years. They were angry at the Sabbath violation, but they became irate when he explained why he did it. He did it, he said, because he himself is God. That's like throwing gasoline on a fire. And they charged Jesus with blasphemy. We saw last week in chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Friends, in the Gospels, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus makes very clear, bold, shocking claims about himself, his identity, and what he came to do. And some of those claims are so shocking that they're difficult for some people to accept. Even to this day, 2,000 years later. But the Christian faith does not require us to kind of turn our brains off and kind of hope for the best. The Christian faith is not a blind leap of faith into the dark. Jesus makes bold claims, 
but he also supports his claims with divine evidence, with testimony and, and witnesses. So look with me at verse 31 of our text this morning. Chapter 5, verse 31. He begins saying, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Focus in on the word alone in verse 31. Jesus' point in verse 31 is, is, is that if he kind of went rogue and said, and, and said things about himself, independent of God the Father or contrary to God the Father, he would be contradicting God the Father because, as he made clear in verse 19, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise, including his testimony. So for that reason, the one who testifies about Jesus, the another, in verse 32, actually refers to God the Father. God the Father is bearing witness about Jesus, his Son, And Jesus knows who he is. Now, at the end of the day, the one testimony that matters is the testimony of God the Father. And there's no question in Jesus' mind as to who he is. He knows who he is. But to help us believe, to trust his claims that he's making about himself... Jesus graciously provides three witnesses that verify his claims about himself. Witnesses that are arranged by God the Father. Their witnesses are John the Baptist, number two, Jesus' works, and number three, the scriptures. Three witnesses, John the Baptist, Jesus' works, and the scriptures. So let's watch as Jesus calls the first witness to the stand, John the Baptist. Look at verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. As a quick reminder, when, you, when, you see, when you're reading John's gospel and he refers to, whenever he mentions the, the name John, he's not referring to himself, the apostle John, he's usually referring to John the Baptist. So we know verse 33, when he mentions John, he's referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as we know, was accepted widely as a prophet sent by God who spoke on behalf of God. In fact, even the Jewish leaders did not deny that claim that John the Baptist was a prophet sent from God. So when they sent a, when these religious leaders sent a group to John to figure out who John was, John was very clear with them in chapter 1. He's not the Christ. He points to Jesus and says that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, by chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later in chapter 1, verse 34, he says, I have seen, John the Baptist says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's crystal clear. Okay, so did these religious leaders then believe this prophet, John the Baptist's testimony? 
Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 35, our text this afternoon or this morning, you were willing to rejoice. So far, so good. For a while in his light. The word rejoice here means to be filled with delight. It means to be excited, to to kind of revel as in a party. Woo! Yes! So at first, John the Baptist is on the scene, and, and yes, they're excited. But their joy was fickle. Their joy was only for a while. It was shallow. Theologian William Barclay explains it this way. He says, John, John the Baptist was a pleasant sensation to be listened to as long as he said the things they liked and to be abandoned whenever he became awkward. And we're going to see this kind of play out more and more in John's gospel, especially in chapter 6. So hold on to that statement. But this, this fair-weather commitment of the religious leaders is actually a, a sober warning for us today. Some come to church or some approach Christianity looking for the pleasant experience that Barclay refers to. As if they're the customer shopping for religious products and the church is the company. If they have a positive experience, they'll come back. They might even go online and give a pleasant review. But if they have a negative experience, if they're uncomfortable, then they're not coming back. They're going to go back to shopping around as a customer. And in retail, we know the boss tells the employees the customer is always right. But in Christianity, God is always right. We aren't customers. I'm not a customer. You're not a customer. We're family. The church is a family. God our Father, yes, he comforts us. He satisfies us with his word. But God's word also confronts us, steps on our toes, and makes us uncomfortable at times. We should be prepared as we're reading the Bible for that experience. If you never are uncomfortable, if you're never confronted or have your toes stepped on by God's word, you might not be reading it right. But when we have our toes stepped on, when we're uncomfortable, it's then that we need to remember God's heart. In verse 34, we see it. He says, I say these things to you. Why? Because he delights in making you uncomfortable? No. I say these things to you so that you may be saved. That's the heart of God. God is always good, church. He is always good, even when it hurts, or even what he's doing doesn't make sense. And by the way, don't forget who Jesus is speaking to. He didn't have to, but he's revealing himself. He's he's speaking that they might be saved to a group of people who are trying to kill him. If I'm Jesus, I'm done. But he keeps pursuing them in love. This is the heart of God. And yet they don't accept the testimony of John the Baptist. So Jesus calls a second witness to the stand. Witness number two is Jesus' works. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. 
For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So if, 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 if someone needs greater proof than John the Baptist, Jesus brings his works and puts it on the scales of justice. It's a weightier testimony. It's a, it's a, a greater evidence, a greater witness that bear witness that God the Father has sent Jesus, the Son of God, to be the Christ. And so at the very least, when you're asking, well, what are his works? At the very least, his works are Jesus' miracles. And John's gospel is going to provide not an exhaustive list of his miracles. He says at the end of the gospel, there's not enough books in this world to record all the things that God did, that Jesus did. But John is going to select seven Miracles, seven signs that actually verify Jesus' claims that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. In chapter 2, he turns the water into wine. Chapter 4, he heals the official's son. Chapter 5, he makes the paralytic walk. Chapter 6, he's going to feed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish. In chapter 6, he walks on water. In chapter 9, he's going to heal the blind. And then to cap it off, in chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead after he was in the tomb for four days. And that's not to mention the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. No doubt, it is tough. It was tough for them and it's tough for us to wrap our minds around someone coming to us and saying, hey, by the way, I'm God. I get it. It's hard to wrap your mind around that, right? But if somebody's walking on water, and raising the dead, the very least it should do is give you pause to maybe examine the claims of this man. But these religious leaders don't take that time to examine. They come with their mind made up. Uh-uh. They don't believe the witness of Jesus' works. After John's record of the seventh miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, John twelve thirty seven says this, though he had done Many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. Two witnesses, John the Baptist, then Jesus' miracles, no belief. So Jesus turns to a third and his most powerful witness, the witness of the scriptures. Look at verse 37. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. We'll pause there. In verse 37, Jesus says, in verse 37, Jesus says, the Father bears witness about him. Then in verse 39, he says the scriptures bear witness about him. Those are, not, those are not 
in contradiction. They actually work together. God, the Father, gives testimony through his word, the scriptures. That's why we, we put these together. In verse 39, Jesus recognizes that these religious leaders, they know their Bibles. He says, you search the scriptures. That word for search means to make a careful, diligent investigation. They're looking carefully into God's word. And if, if we could go back in time, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, they are celebrated by the community as the religious experts. Many of them had entire sections of the, of the Old Testament memorized. Some of them had the, old, the whole Old Testament memorized. These were the, these were the Bible experts. So they knew their Bible. They knew the scriptures. The problem, Jesus highlights in verse 39, was that they loved the study of scripture instead of the God that the scriptures pointed to. When I pastored in Chicago years ago, our church office was temporarily, temporarily located in the 45th floor of the John Hancock building because we were moving offices during the time, and one of our members had some empty space there. So I officed in the John Hancock building for about six months. And the views from our office space of Lake Michigan and downtown Chicago were glorious. I mean, it's, it's like ridiculous that we had, a, I had an office there for a little bit. But imagine that we met, you, you went back in time and you came and visited me in my office in the John Hancock building. And we stood in front of the window overlooking Lake Michigan and, and downtown Chicago. As we stood there and looked out the window, if, if, if all I talked to you about was the rubber seals on the window and the amazing frame that held the window in place and the dimensions of the window, and I never once said anything about the view, you would probably think that's strange, right? You'd probably think, Zach, you're missing the point of the window. Friends, in the same way, the Bible is not an end to itself. Careful and diligent Bible study is necessary, absolutely. Yes. But the purpose of that diligent, careful study is to see and savor Jesus Christ, the one to whom these scriptures point to. They bear witness about Jesus. Your Old Testament bears witness to Jesus Kids, let me just talk to some of you for a little bit. Many of you, many of you are involved in our Awana Bible Memory Program. I love, I love that. You're, you're, you are laboring every week to memorize Bible verses, to hide God's word in your heart. And I just want to say to you, keep doing that. You, you guys are working hard. Keep doing that work of memorizing those verses. But remember, kids, that the goal of memorizing these verses is not to, to memorize the most verses so that you can win a prize at the end of the year. The goal of memorizing these verses is to get to know and love Jesus. So keep memorizing those verses. Hide God's word in your heart. But as you do, pray with your mom and dad. Ask God to help you to get to know Jesus. Ask God to help you to actually love him as you hide his word in your hearts. And church, it's not just the kids that's true for us, too, as we read the Bible week in and week out. Friends, the scriptures, the scriptures are a powerful testimony, a powerful witness 
that testifies that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. That's why we often encourage people, if you're not a Christian, read the Bible for yourself. It will itself testify to who God is. It will itself testify that it is true. you got to read it yourself. But once again, when it comes to this third witness and we ask the question, do they believe? We find out they don't believe. And it's here that Jesus lays out various indictments against these religious leaders. Verse 38, you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me. That word refuse literally is translated, you don't want to come to me. You don't want to. Verse 42, you do not have the love of God within you. Verse 43, you do not receive me. You don't believe me. You don't believe the scriptures. Friends, this is not just these religious leaders. This is not just a Jewish problem that was in the first century. Many today keep Jesus at arm's length, and they have their conditions, right? I'll believe that Jesus is the Son of God if God sends an expert to verify that. I'll believe he is who he says if he just did some miracles, I'd believe if God just spoke to me and told me that he is who he says he is. The problem is God has sent an expert, John the Baptist. God has done miracles in Jesus' works. God has spoken and he's still speaking today. God provides witnesses. They come to the stand and they're just piling up Evidence upon evidence upon evidence. And people still don't believe. So, the question we got to wrestle with this morning is this. What causes unbelief? All this evidence, all these witnesses, all this, it's, it's piling up unbelief. What causes that unbelief? How can we be confronted with all this evidence, hear all this testimony, and not believe? Friends, this is the question that the text we're looking at this morning is asking. This is the question. What is the sort, what is the cause of unbelief? And the purpose of John's gospel, we, we talked about this over and over. The purpose that John wrote this gospel is very clear that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life. He says that in John 20, verse 31. And so I think what's going on here is that by Jesus showing us the cause of unbelief, there's something about knowing the, the cause of unbelief and even having some self-reflection here that helps us then move from unbelief to belief. It moves us from unbelief and questioning Jesus to trusting Jesus. And so if we ask Jesus, okay, all of these people not believing, all this evidence they're not believing, Jesus, you tell us then. If we ask Jesus, what is the cause of unbelief? He answers that for us in verse 44. Look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
Now, verse 44 is a, it's a rhetorical question, which means that we're meant to read verse 44 not as, as a question so much, but as a statement. In other words, he's saying, seeking glory from one another makes it so that you can't believe. Because you're seeking the glory that comes from one another, you can't believe. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for, uh, for, for he wrote of me. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So to set your hope on Moses is to set your hope on the law that God issued to his people through Moses, the Mosaic law. These Jewish leaders believed that, in, that by studying Moses' law and by their effort to keep the law, they would somehow earn acceptance with God. But it didn't work out that way. Instead of finding acceptance, they found Moses, they found the law of Moses accusing them. That's what Jesus says in, in verse 45. So why would the law accuse these religious leaders? Because, Jesus says in verse 46, Moses wrote of me. This is the same thing he said in verse 39. That the purpose of the law was not, the purpose of the law was not to present a self-help program. The purpose of the law is to act like a mirror that we look into that reveals our sin, that awakens our, 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 our awareness that we actually need a savior. And then the law points us to Jesus. Just take some time to read Galatians 3, 19 through 29 this afternoon. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about there. Galatians 3, 19 through 29. So when Jesus told them that they didn't hear God's voice, they didn't hear the audible voice of God, they didn't see God's form, when he says that in verse 37, he knows that in the Old Testament there were people like Abraham or Moses or Samuel or Elijah or Isaiah who did hear the voice of God the audible voice of God, who did see the form of God in some sense. But him, him saying that in verse 37 is not to highlight what they're missing out on. Him saying that in verse 37 is to highlight the privilege of what's happening right now, what they're hearing, what they're seeing. The Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets would have given their right eye to see what they get to see. God in the flesh talking to them. The whole Old Testament was, 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 was pointing to this moment, and they have the privilege of standing right in front of Jesus, God in the flesh. And so here's Jesus, the culmination of the Old Testament, fulfilling the Old Testament with the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of his miracles, the testimony of the Scriptures. And still... I don't believe. Why? Friends, it's tempting to think that maybe they just need some more education. Maybe they just need to go back to theological school. But this is not a schooling problem. This is not an intellectual deficiency. This is a heart issue. Jesus highlights it in verse 40 when he says that you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of the will. 
You refuse means you don't want to come to me. I'm right here. I've come that you might have life, and you don't want it. You don't want to come to me. The testimony was clear. The evidence was clear. But they don't want to see it. They don't want Jesus to be the Christ. The truth is there, but they suppress the truth about God and their unrighteousness. So again, we ask, why? Why would anyone refuse Jesus? Why would anyone not want to come to Jesus? He came to give life. Why would they walk away from him? Why would they not want him? What did they desire more that kept them from receiving and believing Jesus as the Christ? What was rivaling their heart's affection and and, and desire? Verse 44. Jesus provides the answer. How can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Again, that's not a, it's a rhetorical question. It's a statement. They didn't believe. They could not believe because, why? They were enslaved to the praise of man. They wanted glory from one another. Not from God. They were seeking glory from one another, to be liked by others, to be popular, to be in control, to be somebody, to be important, to be noticed in this world. They refused Jesus as the Messiah. But tragically, in verse 43, Jesus says, if another comes to you, In his own name, you will receive him. In other words, what he's saying is, is if a Messiah came to you in his own name, if he came promoting himself and gaining the praise of others, then you believe. Why? Because that Messiah would not demand any change from the glory-seeking pursuits of these religious leaders. In fact, if uh, if a Messiah came in his own name, seeking his own glory, that would be an endorsement of their glory seeking for themselves. In contrast to this Messiah who would come in his own name, Jesus did not come in his own name seeking the praise of man. He didn't need the praise of man. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, not to receive glory from people, verse 41, Why did he come then? To rescue sinners. Jesus, therefore, poses a threat. He made these religious leaders uncomfortable because he came as the light of the world. He came turning the lights on their sin. You you think you're somebody. You think you've made it. You think that you have kept the law. You think that you are, you're it. Then Jesus comes in and it's like, ooh, If he's the standard, we fall short. We don't like that. That's uncomfortable. They had made a name for themselves as the religious leaders. They were important in Jerusalem. They they were somebody. They were the experts. And so trusting in Jesus as the Messiah would mean believing that the glory that comes from God is better than the glory that they have. 
believing that Jesus is who he says he was, is then a threat to the thing that they loved the most. Glory that came from other people. Seats of honor, the respect of the community, greetings in public. Hello, holy reverend Pharisee. Wow. Yes. Now, reading this chapter in God's Word 2,000 years later, it's tempting, it's easy for us to read this about these religious leaders and shake our heads and say, boy, they missed it. What was wrong with these guys? I mean, come on, you guys. And we assume that we're not like them. We assume that we're somehow immune from their heart issue. But church, listen up. This lust for, this longing for, this pursuit of praise that comes from other people is not a first century problem. It's not a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. And it's a big deal. Sometimes it flies under the radar, right? We're not even aware that it's happening in our hearts. So how can we identify whether or not we're, what's, how can we identify in our own hearts that we're guilty of what these religious leaders are, is, are, are guilty of? How can we identify if this lust for or this love of the praise of others is true of us? Well, we need God's help for sure. None of us are the experts on ourselves or other people, but one symptom to look for, one symptom of this heart issue is the, the, the fruit of defensiveness. Um, I am really good at this, so let me try to illustrate what I mean from my own life, unfortunately. I want, I really want to be a good husband, and I really want to be a good dad, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that desire. In fact, if I read the Bible, I'm commanded to strive to be a good husband and a good father. That's a good goal to strive for. The issue here has to do with the motive of our hearts, the motive of my heart. Um, and because my wife is godly and because my wife loves me, there are times when she corrects me and she respectfully points out what I could do different than what I'm currently doing to be a better husband to be a better father. So if my claim of wanting to be a good husband and father is true, then I should rejoice at her correction. Thank you. Yes, you're helping me improve. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says. Thank you. So why is it? Church, why is it that my heart's instinct is to recoil? Try and prove why she's wrong. She's misunderstanding me. Why at times do I sulk, pout like a little child, and get defensive? Here's why. Because as much as I want to be a good husband and good father, I also want her praise. I want her to think of me as a really good husband and a really good father. I want glory from her. And that's sin. Friends, the love of praise from others 
the pursuit of glory from others is not a small issue. And the reason is, is because Jesus is showing us that this longing for praise is the cause of unbelief. It either keeps us from believing in the first place or it chokes out our faith if we have it. It's why we don't want to come to Jesus. We prefer a God who actually endorses our efforts to impress people. We often pray that way. We might, we might dress it up with a religious language, but what we're praying for is that we look good, right? We don't want a God who calls us to change. We want a God who endorses our efforts to impress people, not one who calls us to deny ourselves for the good of others. Not one who calls us to seek the glory that comes from him. Friends, I see this, I confess to you this morning, I see this in my heart, in my desire to be a good husband and a good father. I have to fight against it also in my role as your pastor. I want to be a good pastor, and I should. But if my heart is motivated by a desire to get glory from you, and to get you to praise me, then I'm at risk of not believing the very things that I'm preaching. So I'm asking you to pray for me and pray for your elders that we'd be more like Jesus in this way. Friends, um, but what about you, though, too? It's not just my problem. What might this look like for you? Where do you seek the praise of others? In your career? Your academics? Your music ability? Your physical appearance? Your athletic ability? The clothes that you wear, the house that you own, the car that you drive. Your ability to be a good parent with obedient children. Your spiritual disciplines. Being a nice, respectable person. What makes you feel like somebody? What what, what do you look to to give you value? I can't see into your heart. We can't see into each other's hearts. We're not the Holy Spirit, nor should we pretend to be, but that's why we should pray. And friends, my prayer for myself and for us this week has been that God would search our hearts, that God would keep us from hardening our hearts when God exposes our sin, and that God would grant us true, broken repentance. Not so that we're miserable, but so that we know true joy and true freedom. This is no small issue. So church, one of, your, one of your homework assignments from me this week is to take time to think about this. Pray about it. Talk about it with those that you trust over lunch. Ask God to search your heart, and when he shows you something, turn away from that and seek the glory that comes from the only God. 
Friends, if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're still investigating Christianity, you're not yet a follower of Christ, Jesus in John 5 is calling you to believe that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. He's calling you to trust him with his entire, your entire life. And one of the things we learn from John 5 is that unbelief is not an intellectual problem. God provides ample evidence. He's not hiding the truth for some elite group of believers. He is, he's broadcasting the truth about himself in creation and in his word. He's revealing himself. Remember, Jesus is reaching out to those in John 5 who are trying to kill him. That's not a reluctant revealer. That's him revealing himself graciously. And I, I, admittedly, trading in what the world says will make you valuable for what God says makes you valuable, I understand that that can feel terrifying, like God is asking you to lose everything to follow him, which he is. But Jesus came, verse 40 says, to give you life. So how can we break free from needing the praise of others that actually chokes out our ability to trust him? How can we break free from that such that we actually trust Jesus with it all, that we, can, that we find him as trustworthy? We have to see God's love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He's saying left to ourselves that you and I, we deserve to perish. We're sinners and the, and the wages of sin is death and eternal hell. But in his love, God sent his only son for us, Jesus, fully God, fully man. He lived the perfect life that we failed to live so that he could die the death that we deserve to die on the cross. He died as a substitute so that we could go free. Jesus is the answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life for anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Receiving glory from others, it does feel good, right? I mean, if we're honest, if somebody praises you, you're not going to be like, oh, that, I hate that. No, we like that. <laughs> but the praise of man is fleeting. Even the best athlete, the best musician, the best whoever who's basked in the spotlight, who's known the roar of the crowd, who's known fame and fortune in this life, they too will die and they will be forgotten. So don't buy the lie that the world sells, that the praise of this world is where it's at. There is a glory that is far better a glory that will not perish, spoil, or fade, a glory that comes from the only God who made you, who knows what's best for you, and who himself is infinitely glorious. So turn from your sin. My non-Christian friend, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. It's worth it. A missionary named Jim Elliott, who died early telling others about Jesus, said it well. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the Christian life. Now, friends, if you are a Christian, 
church, that means if, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, there, there was some point in your life where God opened your eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He opened your eyes to see the all-surpassing value of knowing Jesus, and you, in a decision of faith, gave up all things to gain Christ. And in that moment, you know you know you got the better deal. But making that decision to follow Christ is not one that we make in the past and we kind of coast off in the sunset, never to struggle again. doesn't work that way. It's easy for us as followers of Jesus to fall back into this glory-seeking pursuit from other people. It's like an addict who takes a hit. The praise of others provides an immediate high. Woo, feels good. But when we come down from that high, we feel fearful and miserable. So how do we break free? Verse 42, Jesus said, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Freedom from this bondage to the praise of man comes when we replace our love of human praise with a superior love for a superior God. You got to love something better than the praise of man. I pray that God gives us as a church the grace to run hard after him, to love him supremely, to be satisfied in him, to hear what he says in his word, and to do it. Amen? Let's pray together.